0: Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to maniacontheloose.com store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs. There's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. Maniac slash store. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood Maniac on the Loose. Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times. ...and enjoy the ride. The fourth floor. I'm a female nurse who works in the dialysis center on the first floor of a hospital. This is an old hospital that was built in the 1930s. The dialysis center is the only functioning unit in the entire hospital. The second and third floors had been used as offices up until a year or so ago. Now they sit empty. The fourth floor is used for storage only. My supervisor gave me a list of items they needed from the fourth floor. I had never been there before, but several of my coworkers had told me that they've heard unusual sounds when they were on the fourth floor. One person told me they heard a heart monitor beeping even though nothing has been hooked up on that floor in decades. Others had told me they heard footsteps and doors closing. It was getting late, and the last of the patients had left, along with all of the employees except for me and my supervisor. I took the elevator up to the fourth floor. I stepped out and was a little surprised. They said it was used for storage, so I had imagined orderly stacks of files and equipment. What I saw was basically a garbage dump. Various pieces of old hospital equipment, computer monitors, tarps, tools, chairs, old scales, desks, loose files, and just about anything you would expect to find in a hospital were tossed about in an extremely disorderly fashion. This was the place where unwanted items came to die. The floors were stained from years of wear and tear. Portions were covered in a layer of dust. Cobwebs crept out from every corner. Many ceiling tiles were missing. Those that weren't were stained with water damage. It was a really sad state of affairs on that fourth floor. The list of things my supervisor wanted was extensive, so I had a rolling cart with me. All of the lights on the floor were shut off. My supervisor told me there was a breaker box in a closet on the other side of the elevator, and if I flipped the breaker switch, enough lights would come on for me to see well enough. I opened the closet door to be greeted by a large scattering of mouse crap and a pair of old vaginal speculum forceps. I found myself hoping that they had been washed since their last usage. I stepped into the closet, opened the breaker box, and flipped the switch. Nothing. Not one single light came on. I figured I'd just get as much as I could done as long as it was still bright enough for me to see, and then I'd get the rest tomorrow during the day. If my supervisor insisted on getting it all tonight, he'd have to come back up with me and turn the damn lights on himself. I pushed the cart all over that musty floor looking for the things he wanted. There was no rhyme or reason to anything up there. Many of the rooms were full to the brim with various items. Some were completely empty. A few still had hospital beds in them with sheets and pillows still on the bed. I was making good progress, but the sun was fading fast, and it was getting difficult to see. A normal person would have left by now, but I was in a groove and I was determined to get as much done as I could. I stopped when it got to the point where I could barely make out my hand in front of my face. I actually had to feel my way around to get out of the room I was in. When I got to the fourth floor corridor, I could see better. There were windows on each end of the corridor. Fortunately, tonight the moon was strong and was shining through the windows bright enough for me to make my way back toward the elevator without bumping into something. That's when I noticed something that was out of place even for this neglected floor. At the far end of the corridor, standing in front of the window, I could make out the silhouette of a woman. I could see her long dark hair The moonlight was shining on her enough that I could make out that she appeared to be wearing a light-colored hospital gown. She looked like a hospital patient. She was just standing there, staring at me. Again, the only functioning unit in this hospital is the dialysis unit, and those patients get their dialysis and leave. They never stay overnight, and they never wear gowns. It had been at least two decades since any patients had actually stayed in this hospital, so this was really odd and eerie. And then, the figure stepped forward. I ran to the elevator and pushed the call button. I could hear the elevator roar to life, but it was coming up from the first floor and moving slow. My breath quickened as I heard slippers scraping across the floor. They were getting closer. I continued to push the elevator call button fruitlessly hoping it would somehow make the elevator get there faster, but it continued its snail slow ascent. The slipper socks were still sliding across the floor in erratic but deliberate fashion. The sound was getting closer. Closer. They had to be right around that corner. I couldn't wait any longer. I darted out of the elevator foyer into the corridor and raced in the opposite direction of the woman in the gown. I could hear her slippers sliding faster now, as if she were chasing me. I prayed that the stairwell door wasn't chained shut like some of them were in this hospital. If they were, there'd be no escape from whoever, or whatever the hell that is. I got to the stairwell door, turned up on the handle, and pushed the door, but it did not budge. I could hear the erratic sound of the slippers sliding toward me fast. They were close and I swear I heard a breathy moaning sound. I screamed and pushed down on the handle. I guess this was one of those doors where pulling up doesn't move the latch, but pushing down does because I heard the latch click. I kicked that door open and tore down those stairs screaming the whole way. I told my supervisor what happened. That crazy bastard told me to wait there while he checked it out. I told him to wait and I'd call security, but he was having none of it and took the elevator up. I watched the panel on the elevator go from the first floor, second floor, third floor, and then stop at the fourth floor. It seemed like hours, but it was probably mere minutes, before I heard a distant ding and watched the elevator panel flick from the 4th floor to the 3rd floor. It was coming back down. I hope that's my supervisor. The light changes from the 3rd floor to the 2nd floor. But what if it's not him? The light changes from the 2nd floor and I hear a loud ding indicating that the elevator is now on the 1st floor and the doors are about to open. What if it's that woman in the hospital gown? I prepared myself to run like the wind if I saw anyone other than my supervisor standing there. The elevator doors opened. It was empty. Suddenly, everything got cold and I got the eeriest feeling. I broke out in goosebumps and turned to run. I screamed when I bumped into someone. My supervisor... I didn't see anyone up there. Weird thing was, I couldn't get the elevator to work, so I just took the stairs to get back down. I pointed to the open elevator doors. He crinkled his brow in confusion, wondering the same thing I was. The elevator wouldn't have come back down unless someone got into it on the fourth floor and pushed the button to bring them down to the first floor. Who did it? And where were they now? Moving Day My sister and her family were moving into a new house. My brother and I were helping her move. We're both big guys and were in our thirties when this happened. There was an exterior concrete staircase that led to a door that gave me outside access to the basement. My brother and I were bringing some furniture in down there from a small moving van. My sister was moving stuff upstairs from her car. We could hear her moving around on the floor above us as she unpacked. After a while, she hollered down that she was going to leave and get another load. I heard her leave the house, shut the door, and could hear her car start up and drive away. My brother and I went back out to the moving truck and carried in a small sofa. When we sat it down on the basement ground, we both heard a few footsteps on the floor above us. The steps were very subtle and faint, like those of a child. We called up to see if my sister had come back, but she didn't answer, and everything was quiet. No more movement. We both shrugged it off and got back to unloading the van. We didn't notice anything else and kind of forgot about it until we were almost finished unloading. I had a small end table in my hands. I carried it down the concrete stairs and turned the knob to open the door. But the door was locked. The interesting thing was that the basement door didn't have a lock on the knob. The only way to lock that door was with a deadbolt inside. I knocked on the door and called out for my brother to open the door, and then I heard his voice. What are you talking about? But his voice didn't come from inside the house it came from behind me i turned around and saw him standing there with a box in his hands we thought maybe our sister came back perhaps she thought we already left and locked the door so we walked around to the front of the house her car wasn't there we entered through the front door and called out but nobody answered We walked through the entire house and inspected it, but we were alone. Eventually, we went down into the basement and undid the deadbolt so we could finish unloading. We finished up and did not experience anything else, but that was definitely strange. The deadbolt was locked from inside, but if nobody was in the house, who or what locked it? the Company Graveyard. My great-grandfather is buried in a location simply referred to as the Company Graveyard. The graveyard is approximately 30 minutes from where I live. When my aunt and uncle visit from out of state, they like to visit his grave, not only to pay respects, but also to experience the creepy factor, which the Company Graveyard has in abundance. For one, It's very old. Many of the gravestones have markings that date back to the early 1800s. It's also in the middle of nowhere. One has to drive down a long, lonely, winding gravel road to reach it. But the creepiest thing about the company graveyard is that it's abandoned and has been for quite some time to the point where a forest has grown up both around and within it. So in order to see any of the grave sites, you have to venture through the woods. In an attempt to amp the creepy factor up to the maximum, the three of us decided to visit the company graveyard at night. We all brought flashlights, made our way up the eerie gravel road, and stopped once we were greeted by a dilapidated, rusty fence that lines the front of the graveyard. The majority of the fence is overrun by twisted vines and brush, but it can be seen. We get out of the car and begin making our way to the edge of the woods that line the graveyard. We have to watch our steps carefully because many of the gravesites are now sunken, some a good yard into the earth. One gravesite we notice on the outskirts of the forest is sunken so deep and washed away that you can see the corner of the coffin peeping through the dirt. We trek deep into the woods and finally reach my great-grandfather's gravesite. As we always do, we clear any growth away before it has a chance to take hold. His headstone is still in good shape and easy to read. This is unlike many of the gravesites whose headstones are so weathered away by time and elements that the etchings are barely legible. After paying our respects, we wander further into the forest exploring our eerie surroundings and getting a better look at the historic gravesites. It's sad how many of them are completely neglected and forgotten. Trees grow from many of the sites. Others have been completely overtaken by the surroundings, rendering them nearly invisible. I was trying to read the years on an overturned tombstone when I heard my aunt scream and my uncle stating something unintelligible. I turned and hurried toward the beam of their flashlights. My aunt was white as a ghost and was pointing down into an incredibly deep sunken grave. I focused my attention on what their lights were fixed on. I could see it was something down in the corner of the grave. I helped brighten the area with the beam of my flashlight. What is that? At first, I thought I was looking at a pile of gravel, but once my eyes focused, I could make out exactly what it was. A skeleton hand. Holy shit. After some discussion between the three of us, we concluded that this person had probably been buried in a delicate wood coffin that had long since rotted away, and as the grave sank and washed away, the skeleton of the person buried there was becoming exposed. It was a spine-chilling experience and we hightailed it out of there, but our night wasn't over yet. We got into the car and began snaking our way down the desolate gravel road away from the graveyard. My uncle was driving, my aunt was in the passenger seat, and I was sitting in the back seat. I noticed a figure up ahead to the right, just out of view of the car's headlights. It wasn't moving, it was just standing there stationary. As the road twisted to the right and the beams of the headlights exposed the object, I fully expected to see a deer. Instead, what I saw was a gigantic wall of mist dissipating inward. Within a second of the headlights beam hitting it, the mist was gone. I immediately said, what the hell was that? My uncle looked back at me wide-eyed and said, I'm glad you saw that too. I don't know what that mist was, but before the light hit that thing, it was solid and it vanished almost the instant it came into our view. Almost as though we saw something we weren't supposed to. Gettysburg. When I was in my late twenties, my girlfriend and I took a weekend trip to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. As soon as we got close, I had the weirdest feeling of deja vu. It just felt so familiar. Everywhere we went, I felt like I knew what was going to be around the next corner. And for the record, I had never been anywhere near the state of Pennsylvania before, let alone the town of Gettysburg. Even though the deja vu was strange, it wasn't scary. There was almost a comforting feel to it, kind of like I was home. We camped out one night, went horseback riding over the main battlefield, checked out various museums, and lounged in several historic restaurants. All the while, I felt like I had been there before. Our final night there, I was planning on just chilling out, After all, we did have a long drive ahead of us the next day. But my girlfriend was really keen on taking one of the several ghost tours the town had to offer. At first I was reluctant, but it wasn't long before I was thoroughly enjoying myself and thankful to my girlfriend for urging me to do it. It was a fascinating experience. For me, it felt like revisiting an old hometown I had long since been removed from. The tour took us past the Daniel Lady Farm. During the battle, the house was used as a Confederate field hospital. The tour guide said that blood stains some of the wood in the house to this day. As we stood outside, I was overwhelmed by the stench of rotting flesh and stale blood. I asked my girlfriend if she could smell that, and she said she didn't and was clearly confused. She had no idea what I was talking about. I could hear swarms of flies buzzing around my head. I swatted at them and a few people on the tour looked at me like I was crazy. I was also weighted down by a heavy sadness that washed over me. Was I the only one experiencing all of this? We then visited an area of the battlefield referred to as Devil's Den. As the tour guide rattled off the history of the horrific battles that took place there, I could have sworn I heard the distant sound of gunshots and drums. Another place on the tour was the Jenny Wade House. She's famous for being the only civilian casualty during the entire battle. A statue of her adorns the front yard. As we stood looking at the ancient brick house, I could see the silhouette of a woman in one of the upstairs windows pull the window curtain back slightly before vanishing. I couldn't help but call out and point to the window. I asked if anyone else saw it, but nobody did, and the tour guide insisted that there wasn't anybody currently in the house. We then visited a place called the Farnsworth House, The entire side of the building is scarred from gunfire. They led us up to the attic and showed us a small window where a sniper fired from. As I looked through the window, I could hear the endless crack of musket balls bouncing against the bricks. I felt the need to duck for cover. I had the feeling of helplessness as if someone were coming up there to get me, to kill me. I actually had to excuse myself from the attic. Finally. The tour ended at the Gettysburg National Cemetery. Over 4,000 war graves cover the grounds. I felt oddly comfortable there, as if I were surrounded by family and friends. Almost like I was... home. When the tour ended, I was exhausted. I slept heavy that night. I dreamt of being in battle. My dreams were invaded by clouds of smoke battle cries, gunshots, cannon fire, and death. After we returned home, my girlfriend anxiously called me over to the computer as she downloaded all of the pictures from our trip. They were standard vacation pictures until we got to the ghost tour photos. In a photo at the Daniel Lady Farm, there appears to be a misty image of bodies stacked up outside the house. At the Devil's Den, One of the photos has a dark, shadowy silhouette of a man who appears to be holding a rifle. One of the pictures we have from the Jenny Wade House shows the upstairs curtain being held open. In the photos of the Farnsworth House attic, there appears to be bloodstains covering the walls. The strangest thing was that in every photo of me on that tour, my eyes were ghostly white much like the eyes of the foggy platoon of soldiers who were standing behind me in one of the photos at the Gettysburg National Cemetery. I'm a female and I was 14 years old when this happened. My grandparents lived in a different state from us, so whenever my family visited them, we'd stay for a couple of nights. Bedrooms were limited in the house. My grandparents had theirs, and my mom and dad would sleep in the guest bedroom. My brother and I would share the sofa bed that was in my grandfather's den. My grandfather was a hunter, and the den was decked out in various animal heads. It always gave me the creeps like they were watching me. On this particular night, we had gotten to my grandparents' house in the evening. After spending some time chatting with them, my brother and I sat down in the living room and started watching TV. My brother is four years younger than me, so our taste in television programs is vastly different, but we agreed on watching a rerun of The Andy Griffith Show. At some point, I nodded off. When I woke up, all of the lights in the TV room were off. The flickering glow of the television was the only illumination I had. The house was quiet. I didn't hear anyone else talking. My impression was that everyone went to bed, so I decided to do the same. I walked into the den. There was a small desk lamp on in the corner that lit the room up enough for me to see that the sofa bed had already been pulled out and made up. I could see the figure of my brother under the covers on one side of the bed. I quietly, softly, got into bed so as not to disturb him and covered myself up. I closed my eyes and was about to drift off when my brother kicked me in the back. I hated sharing a bed with my brother because he often tossed and turned, so unfortunately, getting kicked like this wasn't out of the ordinary. I let out a frustrated breath and attempted to close my eyes again. This time he pushed me in the back quite hard. Hey! I yelled and shoved him back. The peculiar thing was, when I shoved him, he felt solid and didn't budge. My brother is a thin, wiry kid on the small side. There's nothing solid about him. Then I noticed his breathing. It was deep and raspy. It didn't sound like my brother. All of a sudden, I felt his hands press against my back, and he purposely pushed me out of the bed. The odd strength that he pushed me with was lost on me in the moment because I was so pissed off. I screamed at him, What are you doing? Then I heard a voice. Who are you talking to? It was the voice of my brother. But it wasn't coming from the bed. I turned my head to see my brother standing in his pajamas in the den doorway. If my brother is over there, who is in the bed? I looked back down at the bed, grabbed the covers, and pulled them off. The bed was empty. The laundry room ghost. We were having a new house built, and it wasn't ready yet. Being that we had already sold our previous house, we needed to rent a home for approximately six months or so. The house we rented was nothing special. It looked like an ordinary two-story house. It didn't have an aged, sinister appearance or anything like that. It was the kind of house that could fit into most any neighborhood, and folks wouldn't give it a second glance. For our needs, the house was perfect. It was close to where both my husband and I worked, and the school was in walking distance for our two early teenage daughters. The main floor consisted of a spacious living room, small dining area, and average kitchen. There were three bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs. And then there was the basement. It was a full basement that was partially finished. Since we were only going to be in the house for six months, we only partially unpacked and used the basement to store an assortment of unpacked boxes full of non-essentials. The basement was also where the laundry room was housed. The laundry room was of modest size. There was plenty of room for the washer and dryer. There was nice counter space next to them that made it convenient for folding clothes and placing laundry baskets on. Overall, the room had lots of extra space that, for our needs, wasn't necessary. There was also a crawl space at the back of the laundry room. The crawl space was eye level, so if anyone wanted to go in there, they'd have to hoist themselves up or even use a step stool. A flimsy door hook was the only thing that kept the frail, weather, wooden crawl space door closed. When the crawlspace door was open, you could only see in a few feet before it was swallowed by darkness. Even if you shined a flashlight in there, you couldn't see where it ended. It seemed unusually long. The floor of the crawl space was covered with damp pea gravel. With a husband and two young girls, I spent a fair amount of time in the laundry room and for the first couple of months, nothing unusual happened. Then, things started getting weird. My routine was that when the clothes were dry, I'd take them out of the dryer, fold them, and put them in a laundry basket. Once the basket was full, I'd take it upstairs and put the clothes away. One day, I finished folding clothes and put them in the laundry basket. The basket wasn't full yet, and I had another load of clothes in the dryer, so I went upstairs to do a few things while I waited for them to dry. After I heard the dryer buzzer go off, I went back downstairs. When I entered the laundry room, I started toward the dryer, but paused when I noticed something odd. A few dish towels were on the floor. I distinctly remembered folding them and putting them in the laundry basket, but I shrugged it off assuming I just dropped them without realizing it. The following week, I went through the same procedure. I folded clothes, put them in the laundry basket, and went upstairs while I waited for the next load to finish. When the dryer buzzer went off, I went downstairs, stepped into the laundry room, and froze when I saw several items from the laundry basket on the floor. There must have been a dozen different items out of the basket. I shook my head knowing that there was no way I dropped all of those. It was strange, but I didn't find it too alarming. In the back of my head, I knew there had to be a rational explanation for this. The next week, I was doing laundry in the evening, so I wasn't home alone. I folded the clothes that were finished, put them in the laundry basket, and went upstairs. This time, I had dinner with my husband and daughters. As soon as dinner was finished, they all began the dishwashing duties while I went back downstairs to attend to the laundry. When I stepped into the laundry room, I gasped. All of the contents from the basket were tossed around the entire laundry room. Before my mind could wrap around what had happened i heard gravel shuffling from within the crawl space it was distant but constant someone or something was crawling around in there i slowly approached the crawl space door and carefully undid the hook all while still hearing something clearly moving inside the crawl space i quickly pulled the flimsy door open Immediately, the shuffling stopped. Who's in there? I called out and listened carefully. At first, it was deathly silent. But then I heard what sounded like a squeak in the distance. And then again. It took me a few seconds to realize that it wasn't a squeak at all. It was a wheezing breath, like the breath of an old, lifelong smoker with emphysema i screamed my husband came running and asked what was wrong i told him what happened and pointed at the crawl space someone's in there he grabbed a flashlight hoisted himself up and quickly crawled deep into the crawl space i watched on as he got deeper and deeper finally he stopped and we both just listened The wheezing wasn't there anymore. Everything was silent, and he didn't see anything unusual. People looking for logical explanations may say that one of the kids did this as a joke. But the first two times it happened, they weren't even home. And the last time, I saw them and my husband all from the moment I went upstairs until I went back downstairs. And we were the only ones in the house. I don't know what it was, but for the remainder of our stay there, I just tossed the dry clothes into the laundry basket and folded them upstairs. I was relieved when our new house was finished, and we finally got the hell out of there. The motel, side of the road. I'm a female who was 38 when this happened. I should also note that this was back in the early 1990s before cell phones were a thing. I was on my way back home to Chicago after visiting my parents who live in Cincinnati. My eyes are sensitive to light so I prefer to drive at night and on this night, it was quite late, a little after midnight. The route I took to get back home was not an interstate. It was a two-lane highway that would occasionally shrink down to one lane and have a significant speed limit reduction as it passed through some small towns. There weren't many other people on the road, and it was foggy out, so I had to go slower than I normally would. Due to the fog, I couldn't drive with my bright lights on and couldn't really see much ahead of me until it was very close. Out of the fog, I saw a man walking on the shoulder of the road, heading toward me. He was a tall, balding man who I would guess was in his early 50s. He was far enough over on the shoulder of the road where I wasn't worried about hitting him, but it struck me as odd that he was out so late and quite a distance from any towns that I was aware of. I remember thinking that there was something weird about his eyes, like they were fogged over and vacant. But the most unusual thing was that he appeared to be wearing a white hospital gown. I also thought it looked like the front of his gown was spattered with something red blood i thought maybe he was injured and needed help after i got about 50 feet past him i slowed to a stop and looked in my rearview mirror to inspect closer in the red glow of my tail lights i couldn't see him well but could tell that he had come to a halt i watched for a moment as he methodically turned around stared at me for a moment and then started to walk toward my car I didn't feel comfortable, so I decided to drive away. I watched in my rearview mirror and could see that he was still coming in my direction, but now he was in a full jog. I pounded on the accelerator. I planned to stop at the first gas station I saw to call the police and let them know about this odd man. Just a mile or two down the road, I came upon a small motel with a green neon vacancy sign. It was an old motor lodge with a lodging unit that people entered directly from the parking area as opposed to a central lobby. There were a couple of cars in the parking lot, and I could see that there was a light on in the office. I was sure that there'd be someone in there in case someone wanted a room, so I thought I'd stop and have them call the police for me. I entered the office. It had cheap fake wood paneling, and my nose started to itch from the musty odor. There was nobody behind the counter, but there was a little bell sitting there that said to ring the bell for service. I rang the bell and waited, but nobody came. I rang it again. Still nobody. Hello? There was no reply. I could hear a TV on in the back room behind the counter. I waited a few minutes in case they were in the bathroom and rang the bell again. Still nothing. The counter had an edge on it that could be lifted up if somebody wanted to get behind it. It was already in the upright position, so I decided to walk behind the counter and into the back room to see if anyone was there. Maybe they were asleep. And if not, maybe I could at least find a phone and call the cops. As soon as I stepped behind the counter, I froze. There was a puddle of blood on the floor and a blood trail that led into the back room. I darted out of the motel office and got back into my car. That's when I noticed an axe sticking out of one of the motel room doors. Then I realized that all of the doors to the motel rooms had huge hack marks in them, as though someone went to every single room of the motel and tried to break them down with an axe. Then I remembered the man on the road. The man who appeared to be spattered with blood. When I last saw him, he was jogging back this way. I wondered if I had been stopped at this motel long enough for him to have reached this point yet. I wasn't going to take any chances. I started backing up. Then I heard someone shouting at me. Get out of the car!" I looked over and saw a deranged young woman running from one of the motel rooms waving her hands. She kept demanding that I get out of the car. She looked completely insane. I peeled out of there and sped down that highway. About ten miles down the road, I saw a commotion of police cars with flashing lights in front of an old hospital building with a sign out front that read, Western Hopkins State Hospital. I pulled over and ran up to one of the police officers. He told me to get back in my car. He said that a dangerous patient had killed a guard and escaped from the hospital. I told him about the man in the hospital gown, the motel with the blood, and the crazy woman. In a flash, all of the police officers jumped into their vehicles and headed toward the motel. I quickly drove away from there. I was on the road for about an hour until I got to a gas station. I filled up my car with gas and went to the restroom. When I got back to my car, I noticed the back door was open. I walked up to it cautiously, ready to run back into the gas station if anything weird happened. Nothing looked unusual. Everything appeared to be in order. I assumed my back door wasn't latched well, and probably the shift in weight when I stopped for gas caused it to open. That was just an odd ending, to a very scary night. The Motel Vacancy I'm a female, I was in my early twenties on this night. i just finished visiting my grandfather who was a patient at the Western Hopkins State Hospital for the mentally ill. He was kept in the minimum security portion of the hospital, as he wasn't a danger to himself or others. When I left his room, I noticed another patient standing at the end of the hall. He was a tall, balding man in his fifties. He had really weird eyes and was staring at me. It gave me the shivers. I saw a security guard approach him. The security guard seemed very surprised to see the tall man. I heard him say, how did you get in here, several times. It gave me the impression that this was a maximum security patient who was somewhere he didn't belong. As I left the floor, it sounded like the security guard and the patient might have been scuffling. I wanted to get away from the scary man, so I just left. When I drove away from the hospital, my car started making a really weird sound and was sputtering. I thought I was going to be stranded on the side of the road, but then I saw a sign for a motel. I pulled into the parking lot and parked. I could see the motel manager behind the office building chopping wood. He was a really nice older guy. I asked him if he knew of any repair places nearby, and he said there weren't any, but that he'd take a quick look under the hood for me. After examining it, he said he knew what the problem was and could fix it, but needed a part. He said he could run down to the parts store in the morning and have me up and running by noon. So I got a room for the night. The room I got was number one. It was the closest room to the office. I was pretty tired and fell asleep early. I was awakened by what I thought was a scream. I got up and looked out the window. Nothing seemed unusual, but I I thought I'd go to the motel office and see if the manager had heard that too. I stepped into the office. I didn't see the manager, but I could hear that the TV was on in the back office area. There was a bell on the counter, so I rang it a few times, but he didn't answer. I shrugged and was about to go back to my room when I heard a groan coming from the back office area. I lifted the counter divider up and walked behind the counter. The first thing I noticed was all the blood. I thought maybe the manager had some kind of accident, so I ran into the back room to check on him. What I found was the tall, crazy man that I saw at the hospital earlier. He was holding a bloody axe and standing over the body of the motel manager. I screamed, ran to my room, and locked the door. I could hear the crazy man shrieking outside. He kept saying, Where are you? Where are you? I went into the bathroom, shut the door, and took refuge in the bathtub. I could hear this axe smashing against the door again and again. The cracking sound was getting louder and louder. He had to be close to getting in. Then I heard him move to the next door, and the next, and the next. Apparently he wasn't sure which room I was in. I stayed hidden in the bathtub trying my best not to make a peep as I heard the axe being driven in every door of the motel over and over again. Eventually, he made it back to my room and hacked at it some more before, suddenly, all went silent. I wasn't about to make a move out of that bathroom. For all I knew, he could be standing outside just waiting for a clue as to which room I was in. I silently sobbed in that room for hours, until I heard a car pull into the motel parking lot. Who was that? Could it be one of the crazy man's buddies? Maybe it was the police? Or maybe it was just another prospective motel patron who was surely in danger if the lunatic was still out there. Finally, I got up. I slowly inched my way to the front window of my room, bent down, and opened the bottom curtain just enough to peek out. I could see an empty car running. It was parked directly in front of the motel office. Then I saw him. The crazy man in the hospital gown. He didn't see me. He wasn't even looking in my direction. His weird eyes were fixed on the car. I watched as he slowly approached the car, opened the back door, and got into the back seat. A few seconds later, I saw a woman hurrying out of the motel office and getting into that car. I had to warn her. I threw my motel room door open and rushed out, screaming for the woman to get out of her car. I'm not sure if she didn't hear me or just thought I was a loon, but either way, she peeled away and drove off into the night, never knowing that the crazy man was in the back seat of her car. Kidnapped the kid. I'm a nine year old boy. The year is 1978. My parents and I stopped at a fast food place to eat. Rather than eat outside, we went through the drive through. We parked in the parking lot and ate. Outside the restaurant was a small play area for kids. The feature of the play area was a huge wooden pyramid that kids could climb on. I had my eye on that awesome thing the entire time we ate. I made a point to eat super fast and finished before my parents did, in hopes that they'd let me play on that wood pyramid for a few minutes. As I wolfed down my food, I politely asked if I could climb the pyramid real quick. They were reluctant at first because we weren't going to be there long, but ultimately they opted to let me have my fun. I ran from the car and immediately started my climb to the top of the gigantic pyramid. It was a piece of cake. I was to the top in no time. I just sat at the top proudly for a few minutes and looked down at the mostly empty parking lot. That's when I noticed the red Mustang. He parked right in front of the pyramid, which I thought was a little strange because there were a lot of other parking spots closer to the main entrance. I could see the driver well. He looked like he was in his mid to late 20s. He had long, shaggy blonde hair. I could also see that someone was sitting in the passenger seat. I couldn't make them out very well. They appeared as more of a silhouette. I got the impression that it was a female with short hair and it looked like she was wearing glasses. The driver rolled down his window and stuck his head out. He looked directly at me.
1: Hey, kid, you like the car?
0: I didn't really know what to say, so I just nodded and said, yeah. Come here. I was not a dumb kid. I had seen enough preventative videos about kidnapping to know that if a stranger tries to get you into their car, you run. The problem was, I wasn't in a position to run. I was sitting on top of the huge pyramid. In order to run, I had to climb back down first. The bottom of the pyramid ended at the sidewalk. The man's car was parked just on the other side of the sidewalk. So in order to climb down and run, I had to go toward the man in the car. Each plank I climbed down, the closer I got to the man. It seemed like forever as I worked my way down. I kept thinking that if he wanted to, the man could get out of his car and come and get me at any moment. Finally, I reached the final plank and stepped onto the sidewalk. I was just a few feet away from the car and the suspicious man. I ran. I ran so fast. When I reached my parents' car, I turned around to see what the shaggy-haired man was doing. He was peeling away in his Mustang. I jumped into the back seat and frantically told my parents what happened. My dad was a big guy that you didn't want to mess with, and he was mad. He immediately started the car and gave chase, but once he turned out of the fast-food parking lot, he couldn't find the Mustang. I don't know what that guy wanted, but the way he peeled off as soon as I started to run away gave me the feeling that his intentions were nefarious. Kidnapped. The Kidnapper. There was a nice day for a drive. I picked up my wife's corpse and gently set her in the front seat of my Mustang. Yes, I was fully well aware that she was dead. After all, I was the one who killed her. But I wasn't ready to depart with her just yet. I'm sure you can understand that. Her eyes were white and lifeless, so I kept them covered with sunglasses. But the expression on her face was frozen in a disappointed look. I felt like I needed to do something to make her happy. She always wanted a kid. Maybe that would make her feel better. So the plan for the day was to go to the park, find a child who was off by themselves, and kidnap them. I started driving toward the park, but decided to stop and get some food from a fast food joint that I could eat on the way to the park. I pulled into the parking lot and started toward the drive through. That's when I saw him. He was a little frail looking boy with a Dutch boy haircut. He was sitting at the top of a large wooden pyramid in the restaurant play area. He was perfect. The perfect age. The perfect size. So small. I I could handle him easily. At first I thought I'd just climb up there and nab him. But what if he struggled and screamed? That could alert somebody nearby. That could be trouble. It would be better if I could get him to come to me willingly. But how could I do that? Then it dawned on me. My car. I have a super cool Mustang. Little boys love sports cars. I can lure him over to look at the car and then I'd take him. I could see that the kid was looking at me. Maybe he was already mesmerized by my hot car. This was going to be easier than I thought. I rolled down the window. Hey kid, you like the car? The kid looked a little nervous as he nodded and said, yeah. Come here. And immediately, the kid started coming to me. When he reached the bottom of the pyramid, he was only a few feet from the front of my car. I considered jumping out of the car and grabbing him right there, but then I thought, why make it more difficult than it has to be? I'll wait until he's right next to my door. I must admit, I was a little shocked when the kid started running away. I was about to get out and give chase, but then I saw him run to a car, and the man in the driver's seat looked big and mean. I didn't want any part of him, so I peeled out of that parking lot as quick as I could.
1: I looked in my rearview mirror and could see
0: the man's car backing out of the parking space with urgency. This guy is going to chase me. I pulled out onto the long main road. My super cool car wouldn't be hard to spot, so I needed to get off this road fast. Up ahead was a thin gravel road. I turned onto it. It was a twisty road. I, I hit the gas and flew down it. It ended at an old, run-down shack. There was smoke breaking through the cracks in the roof, and I could smell the robust scent of meat. This was some kind of smokehouse. But my eyes immediately locked onto the black and gold 1970 Oldsmobile 442. This thing was one big, beautiful beast. As I drooled over the muscle car, a barrel-chested old man in overalls stepped out of the shack. He could see that I was enamored with the car and smiled at me, revealing his missing front teeth. Hey, kid, you like the car? Come here. I nodded enthusiastically, and he waved me over. He popped open the hood and I darted from my car, excited to see that 455 cubic inch V8 engine that produced 365 horsepower. Hell, since we're out in the middle of nowhere, maybe I'll knock this old man off and take this beast of a car for my own. Kidnapped. The Smoke Shack. I was smoking my last batch of jerky when I heard a car pull up outside. I don't get many visitors out here at my smoke shack, which is just the way I like it. I stepped out onto the front porch and eyed the fine-looking red Mustang. I could see the mop-headed blond man behind the wheel admiring my old 442. I called out to him. "'Hey, kid, you like the car?' Come here." The mop-headed man practically ran toward me. When I hit him on the back of the head with my hammer, he collapsed like a sack of potatoes. They always do. I'm good with my hammer, and they never see it coming. I had noticed that he had a dead body in the passenger side of his car, so this was probably some kind of psycho serial killer. It's perfect. He won't be missed. And I was in need of more meat for my famous smoked jerky, anyhow. Well, this turned out to be quite a nice day indeed. Haunted bed and breakfast, Rivertown. I'm a 45-year-old male. This didn't happen too long ago. My wife and I decided to spend five days at a bed and breakfast in a quaint, charming river town. For context, it's important that I explain the layout of the building we stayed in. It was a vintage three-story building built in the 1850s. It was located in the historic downtown district close to a river. The first floor was a Mexican restaurant. There was a side entrance next to the restaurant that led to a flight of stairs. The stairs led to the second floor. The second floor had two bedrooms, separated by a small sitting room. A long, thin corridor led to a bathroom, and just beyond that was a large kitchen. At the far end of the kitchen was a staircase that led to the third floor. A light switch in the kitchen illuminated the staircase, and the staircase to the third floor ended at a door. This allowed the people staying on the third floor to have a little bit of privacy. The third floor was quite spacious. There was a large bedroom that was positioned on the side of the upper part of the staircase. There was a foggy glass partition between the bedroom and the staircase, so if you were in the bedroom, you could see the silhouette of whoever was coming up the stairs. The third floor had its own kitchen, living room, and a dining room that housed a full-sized pool table. Our first day there, we did some sightseeing around the town. When we came back in, I noticed a small desk lamp in the living room. The adjustable hood was flipped back, exposing the light bulb. I had not taken note of the desk lamp earlier in the day, but had the hood been flipped back like that, I felt like it was something I likely would have noticed. My first thought was the hood was probably heavy, and if it were loose, gravity may pull it back into that position. I fiddled with it and quickly discovered that it was tight. I tried to get it to fall back down on its own, but couldn't do it. Perhaps she dusted it and unintentionally pushed it too hard, causing the hood to fall back. The next night, my wife and I were lying in bed. She had already fallen asleep and I was watching a movie. All of a sudden, I heard the TV in the living room turn on. I got out of bed to check and sure enough, There was the TV, turned on, and quite loud. It was kind of weird, but I know there are a lot of rational explanations for TVs turning on by themselves, so I just turned it off and went back to bed. Nothing else unusual happened until our final night there. We had been up late that night. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and we had just turned off the lights and laid down in bed. Within a few seconds, the light in the third floor stairwell turned on, as if someone were in the kitchen and flipped the light switch for the third floor stairwell lights. Then my wife said she saw a silhouette of someone coming up the stairs toward the door. The fact that it was two o'clock in the morning made this very strange. No one should be trying to get onto our floor at this time of night. I grabbed a pool cue from the other room, went to the third floor door, and opened it. Nobody was there. We knew one lady was staying on the second floor alone. We had met her earlier that night. I thought maybe it was her, so I went down to the second floor. All of the lights were off in the kitchen. I walked down the corridor to the front of the second floor where the bedrooms are. The lights were all off and everything was quiet. I thought maybe someone forgot to lock the entrance door downstairs, so I went down the stairs and checked. The door was dead bolt locked. Everything appeared safe and sound, so I went back up to the third floor. This is a really old building, and when I got back to the third floor, my wife mentioned that she could clearly hear me walking around on the second floor. She could hear my footsteps and the creaks and squeaks of the flooring very clearly. We hadn't heard any of that. If someone had come up the stairwell and then went back down, we would have heard them go down the stairs and then walking around on the second floor, but we never heard anything. I decided to go down to the kitchen and walk back up the stairs so my wife could compare my silhouette through the glass of the silhouette she saw. After doing this, my wife said the silhouette that she saw was at least six feet higher up than where I was. We couldn't come up with a rational explanation as to why the silhouette she saw was so high up. The next day when we checked out, I told the owner what happened and asked him if anyone else ever reported any strange experiences while staying there. He said not often, but told me that before they turned it into a bed and breakfast, he used to live on the third floor and had one odd experience. He said he was asleep one night and heard the crack of billiard balls as if someone racked them up and broke. He said he grabbed a gun from his nightstand, ran to the pool table room, but there was nobody there, and there were no billiard balls on the table. Haunted Bed and Breakfast Bourbon Town. I'm a female. I was 38 years old when I visited the historic Bourbon Town. I was with a girlfriend of mine, and we rented a room in a bed and breakfast that was actually a jailhouse back in the 1800s. Apparently the jail section of it was active all the way to the 1980s, and the cells still exist, although nowadays they're a museum that you can tour through. The front part of the jailhouse used to be where the jailers would stay. Those are the rooms they renovated and turned into the rooms people rent. We were there during the off-season, so we were the only people staying there. The owner was very friendly. Since we were the only ones there, he not only gave us a tour of the jail cells, he also showed us through all of the other rooms. The place was oozing with history. He even said that Jesse James was friends with the jailer and would stay there sometimes when he was in town. The owner lived off-site, so once he left for the day, we had the entire building to ourselves. Our room was very rustic and cozy. On the nightstand was a notebook that was used by people who previously stayed there. They wrote down where they were from and their experiences while staying at the bed and breakfast. One of the entries was from a woman who claimed to be a psychic. She said that this room had a ghost living in it. She said the ghost was cordial and would not make its presence known unless you requested it. We were game, so we sat on the bed, Introduced ourselves to the ghost and asked if they would like to make their presence known to us. About 30 seconds went by, and then something happened. My friend's laptop was sitting on the bedstand. She had it in sleep mode. All at once, the computer came out of sleep mode and turned on. A few seconds later, it went back into sleep mode. That was pretty wild. We didn't want to wear out our welcome with the ghost, so we left it at that. We went to bed that night, and I woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Right after I woke up, I heard a door shut from somewhere else in the building. If we were the only ones staying there, who shut the door? I got up and walked around the building. There were three rooms on our floor. And three rooms above us. The jail cells were in the back. The door I heard sounded distant, so I went upstairs. All of the rooms were empty. I didn't see anyone. But when I was in the furthest room, I heard a door shut again. It definitely came from downstairs. I went back downstairs. My friend was asleep in her bed, so I walked through the other two rooms on our floor. I saw no signs of anyone else, but I heard a loud creak come from one of the rooms above me. It was the kind of creak you hear when someone puts their weight on a squeaky portion of the floor. I had just been up there. There was nobody there. Still, I decided to go back up and check once more. I walked through every room again. I still saw no sign of anyone, but I did have the distinct feeling that I wasn't alone. I went back downstairs and decided to go to the back of the building to the jail cell area. Let me tell you, that place late at night with nobody else around has a completely different feel to it. I don't really want to say creepy or scary, or anything like that, more like a heavy feeling. I would occasionally stop for long moments and listen. I would hear little creaks and squeaks here and there, but nothing that sounded unnatural. Once I concluded that everything seemed okay, I went back to bed. We didn't have any other experiences for the remainder of our stay, and never got any creepy feelings or anything like that. We actually felt welcome there. House-sitting, the house-sitter. For reference, I'm a 16-year-old female. A friend of my family asked if I would house-sit for them while they went on vacation for a week. They mostly wanted me to check on their cat and make sure his food and water were full. They also wanted me to turn different lights on and off to give the appearance that someone was home. I was totally game, mainly because they have Netflix and my family doesn't, so I planned on hanging out there a lot. It was a really cool two-story house located in the historic district of a delightful little town. It was just down the block from Town Square. I have a brother and sister who are both a few years younger than me. They can be annoying sometimes, so I was kind of excited to have an entire house to myself. It would be nice to vegetate in front of the TV in peace. I wanted to go to the house straight from school, but my parents made me come home so I could have dinner first. When I finally got to the house, it was just starting to get dark outside. I was told that the key would be under a plant near the front door. I bent down and got the key. As I stood up and got ready to unlock the door, I had the strangest feeling that somebody was watching me. I turned around and saw a man directly across the street. He was just standing there staring at me. He was wearing black pants and a dark gray hoodie. He had the hood up so I couldn't see his face. He gave me the creeps so I quickly unlocked the door and got into the house. I locked the door and attached the security chain. I was greeted by a loud meow. I turned to see the fuzzy cat. He stared at me for a few seconds and then darted away into the other room. The people said the cat was shy and that he would likely stay hidden while I was there. I filled up his food and water and settled myself in their cozy living room. I was just about to turn on the TV when I heard a loud creak coming from one of the rooms upstairs. It sounded like a footstep. Normally, I may have been a bit alarmed, But I brushed it off assuming it was the cat and began watching TV. I started watching a show, but I had to take a quick break to use the bathroom. While I was sitting on the toilet, I heard another loud creak. But this time it wasn't coming from upstairs. It was coming from outside the bathroom door. This time it wasn't just one creak. It was several. It sounded like somebody was outside in the hallway. I sat there for a long time and listened, but didn't hear anything else. I finished up in the bathroom and cautiously stepped out into the hall. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, but I thought I'd be on the safe side and double check to make sure the front door was still locked. Just as I reached the front door, my cell phone began to ring. But it sounded distant. It didn't sound like it was in the living room. It sounded like it was coming from upstairs. But I hadn't been upstairs. I took a few steps toward the staircase and then stopped when I heard a loud bang on the front door. As I startled and spun around, there was another knock. I kept the security chain fastened as I unlocked the door and opened it just a crack. Standing on the front porch was the scary guy in the hoodie. I was going to ask him what he wanted, but he spoke first. "'Are you home alone?' Before I could even answer, he asked again. "'Are you here all alone?' I didn't want to admit to him that I was alone, so I just blurted out that my family was here with me. His hoodie was up, so his face was still darkened, but I could make him out well enough to see a glint in his eyes that told me that he did not believe a word I was saying." he spoke again come out here i was getting creeped out so i tried to shut the door but he blocked the door with his sneaker i screamed and turned to run but he reached inside and grabbed me by the shirt as i tried to free myself from his grip i could hear him pounding on the door with his shoulder i heard the wood snap as the security chain gave way and suddenly he had both of his arms around me i kept screaming as he pulled me out of the house and into the front yard. House Sitting The Man Across the Street I'm a jogger. I love jogging through the historic district of my town. There are several blocks of extravagant historic homes, some dating all the way back to the early 1800s sometimes when there are no cars passing by i feel like i've been transported back in time dusk is my favorite time for jogging and i jog through here almost every evening one of my favorite houses on the block isn't one of the oldest or fanciest it's a two-story home with a warm feel it's painted an unusual shade of dark blue with maroon trim i always tend to stare at it as i jog by Tonight, as I jog by this house, something caught my eye that caused me to stop and stare. All of the lights were off in the house except for one of the upstairs rooms. The room had a curtain, but it must have been some kind of chiffon fabric because I could see through it. I saw a naked man standing near the window. Normally I would have just thought, hey, bad luck for this guy to be walking naked by his window as someone is passing by. But the unusual thing was that the man was wearing a rubber clown mask. He appeared to be wearing blue gloves, latex gloves maybe, and he was holding a knife. He wasn't just standing in front of the window gawking out. He was passing by the window every few seconds. It was like he was pacing back and forth. That's when I noticed the young girl walking up to the house. I watched as she bent down and removed something from under a plant. Probably a key, which meant she was likely house-sitting. She looked over in my direction and then hurried into the house. I probably spooked her. I looked back up at the second floor window. The clown man stopped in his tracks once the door shut. He stood frozen like he was listening for a long time. He then walked away from the window, but he moved very carefully like he was trying to be quiet. I started putting things together in my mind. Why would this young girl be house-sitting if someone else was home? And the clown man was acting in a stealthy manner, like he didn't want the girl to know he was there. The clown man was away from the window for several minutes and then returned. I could then see him start making stabbing motions with the knife, like he was warming up. This was all strange enough for me to call the police, but I didn't want to wait around for them to get there, so I walked up to the house and knocked on the door. The house sitter sheepishly opened the door and looked at me suspiciously. I immediately asked her if she was home alone. She was hesitant, but said that her family was there with her. I could tell by the nervous tone of her voice and the jittery way she was acting that she was lying. She was afraid of me and unaware that there was some psycho upstairs waiting for her. I tried to urge her to come out of the house, but she attempted to shut the door. I instinctively stuck my shoe in the door to keep it from shutting. My fear was that I may have inadvertently scared her to the point where she might run upstairs to hide. Upstairs where the clown man is waiting for her. I reached into the door opening and grabbed her shirt, keeping her from fleeing, but I was losing my grip and was worried that if she got away from me, the crazy man upstairs might kill her. I began pounding at the door with my shoulder and finally the security chain gave way. I wrapped my arms around the girl and pulled her into the front yard away from the house. Away from the clown man. By the time the police arrived, I had already managed to calm down the girl enough to where she would listen to me and began to realize that I was just trying to help. As I suspected, she had no idea anybody else was in the house. I explained to the police what happened and they searched the entire house. They didn't find the clown man. All they found was a knife in the room upstairs lying next to the house sitter's cell phone. House-sitting, clown man.
1: Tina. That was the name of the young girl I was targeting. I like young meat. I had been stalking her for a week. She had no idea. I'm good at this. The problem with Tina was that she lived with her family, and there was always somebody home with her. When she was away from home, she was constantly with friends. I needed to get her alone. This was proving to be difficult, and I was about to give up and move on to another girl, when I overheard Tina telling one of her friends that she was going to be house-sitting. She even told her friend that it was the house on the corner of 4th Avenue and Maple. Her friend asked her if it was the dark blue house with maroon trim. Tina confirmed this. Perfect. I got to the house early. Fortunately there was no security system and I was able to break in easily. I noticed a fuzzy cat meandering about. When the cat noticed me, it meowed and then ran off. He was clearly shy and wouldn't give me away. I removed a sturdy chef's knife from a kitchen drawer and found a room upstairs that I liked. It was here that I'd do the deed. I stripped off my clothes and sealed them in a garbage bag. I always work in the nude, and I always wear latex gloves. No need to make things easy on the authorities. Lastly I put on my mask. If something goes wrong and my target escapes, they can't describe what I look like. I wear a variety of masks, on this day I'll be the clown man. It was dusk before Tina finally arrived. I was pacing impatiently when I heard the front door open. Finally. I waited a while. I assumed she would explore the house and come upstairs on her own. That's when I'd take her. But then I heard her turn the TV on. She was watching TV. Perhaps she wouldn't come upstairs at all. I opted to kill her downstairs instead. As I made my way down the stairs, I stopped when I saw Tina walking down the hall and going into the bathroom. Fortunately, she didn't see me. I stood outside the bathroom door for a minute. I could kick the door down or wait for her to open the door. Either way, This was going to be easy. Too easy. It would be more fun if I could lure her upstairs. I walked to the living room and saw her cell phone lying on the table. I picked it up and took it back upstairs with me. I looked in her settings and found her phone number. I then used the landline phone and called it. Surely, she would come upstairs to look for her phone. That's when I heard someone knocking on the door. How disappointing. I slinked my way partially down the stairs to see what was happening. I could hear Tina talking to someone, but couldn't make out what they were saying. I was shocked to see a man bust down the door and pull Tina outside. I don't know who the hell this guy is, but I guess he beat me to it. I grabbed my garbage bag full of clothes, dropped the knife next to Tina's cell phone, and snuck out the back. Oh well, there are plenty of other girls out there. I'll just move on to the next one.
0: Movie theater horror stories, The Woman in Red. I'm a male. This happened back in the 1980s. This was at a time when movie theaters still had ushers. I was 18. I worked as an usher in a four-screen movie theater Being an usher was a lot of fun and the duties were fairly simple. Between movies, we'd sweep up the lobby and tidy up the bathrooms. During the movies, we would do aisle checks to make sure no one had their feet up on the seats and that no one was talking too loudly. In between showings of the movies, we'd do a quick cleanup of the theater before we let the next crowd in. Sometimes we got to kick people out who were trying to sneak in or were being unruly. Most of the employees were high school kids who preferred to work on the weekends. I didn't mind working during the week, so on weekdays, I was the closing usher. Fifteen minutes after the final movies of the night started playing, the ticket office would close and the workers would go home. The concession workers would clean up and then leave. The only two employees left in the theater were the closing manager and the closing usher. We both had to stay until the movies were over and everyone was out of the building. We usually got out of there between midnight and one o'clock. During the final showings, the manager would stay in the office and do end-of-the-night paperwork. Sometimes I would help the concession workers clean up, but once they left, I would mostly just watch movies. After all of the movies were over and I checked the theaters, I would check the bathrooms to make sure no one was still in there. Once I confirmed that everyone was out of the building, the manager and I would leave. There was only one movie still playing, and it would be ending soon, so I started doing my final checks of theaters and bathrooms for the night. I stepped up to the women's bathroom and could hear the faucet of the sink running. It sounded like someone was washing their hands. I waited outside several minutes, but the water was still running. I knocked on the door and called out, ''Bathroom check!'' But nobody answered, so I entered the bathroom. Sure enough, someone had left the sink running, and it was the hot water that they left on, so it had steamed up the mirror. I walked to the sink and turned off the water. That's when I saw two small words smudged across the steamy mirror. Turn. Back. I didn't think much of it and checked all the stalls. Nobody was in the bathroom so I exited the bathroom and made my way toward the only theater that still had a movie playing. Being that this was a weeknight, there were only a few people in the theater. When I saw them all exiting the theater at once, I knew the movie was over. I stepped into the theater and waited for the credits to end. Once they ended, the house lights came up. That's when I saw her. There was a woman in a tattered red dress, standing in the very front of the theater. She had thin, stringy, light blonde hair. It looked wet. She was standing with her back to me and was staring up at the blank screen. I waited several seconds for her to leave, but she wasn't moving, so I called out. Are you okay? She slowly turned her head back and looked at me over her shoulder. She was extremely pale, and had abnormally dark circles around her eyes. After a moment, she slowly walked out of the back exit that was behind the movie screen. I could hear the heavy metal exit door open and close. I went down to the door she exited through, opened it, and poked my head out into the back alley behind the theater. I looked both ways, but didn't see her. I shut the door and made sure it locked shut and exited the theater. The manager was waiting for me in the lobby. I told him about the creepy lady as we walked out into the parking lot. As we said our goodbyes and I walked toward my car, I peered out over the big empty parking lot and stopped abruptly. The woman in red was standing at the far end of the parking lot. She had her back to me as she did in the theater. She slowly turned her head and looked over her shoulder at me. I turned to my manager. I pointed at the woman in red and hollered out that she was there. I could see his face appear confused as he looked in that direction and then asked me what I was talking about. The woman in red, she's right over... My words trailed off as I turned my head. She was gone. I kind of shrugged this all off. Yes, the woman in red was strange and definitely brought the fright factor, but maybe she lived nearby and was just walking home. I started for home but was running low on gas, so I stopped at a gas station just down the road. As I started pumping gas, I looked up and let out an audible gasp. At the far end of the gas station building stood the woman in red. She had her back to me again, but turned back to look at me before slowly stepping out of sight behind the building. I knew the person who worked at the gas station, so I went inside and told him that I thought there was a strange woman following me and that she was behind the building. We both went around the back of the building to look for her, but she wasn't there. I stepped to the spot where I saw her at. There was a small patch of dirt next to where she was standing, and I noticed that it looked like someone had written something in the dirt. I bent down to get a closer look. Scribbled in the dirt were the words, TURN BACK. We scanned the area a little longer and didn't see her. I had enough of all this. I wanted to get away from this area and that strange woman in red. So I headed for home. I lived about 30 minutes from the movie theater and the majority of my drive was a long, sparsely traveled two-lane highway. As I drove along, I was in the mood for a little music. In particular, I wanted to listen to some Wang Chung. I kept my cassette tapes in a holder between the seats. I picked out their album Mosaic and slid it into my car's cassette player. As I looked up, my eyes widened and I slammed on the brakes. The woman in red was standing in the middle of the road. Her back was to me. The last thing I saw before I skidded to a halt on the shoulder of the road was her dark eyes as she turned her head back and looked at me. I pulled a flashlight from my glove compartment, got out of my car, and looked for the mysterious woman. But there was no sign of her. As I continued to search for her, the ground shook and I was startled by a massive explosion. A gigantic mushroom cloud of fire filled the sky a mile or so up the road. I got in my car and drove as fast as I could toward the blaze of fire to see if anyone needed help. I got as close as I could before it got too hot to drive any closer. Up ahead, I could see that a gasoline truck had an accident and exploded. There was no way the driver of the truck survived. The flames were engulfing everything, so much so that I couldn't tell if any other vehicles were involved. I knew I had to turn back and get help. Turn back? All at once, the pieces started falling into place. The woman in red was signaling for me to turn back. From the way she turned back to look at me, to the message on the steamy mirror and in the dirt. If the woman in red had not caused my slight delay, I would have been further up the road and likely been hit by that gas truck. I'd be dead right now. I don't know who the woman in red was, and I haven't seen her again since then, but it's obvious to me that she saved my life that night. So to the woman in red, whoever you are, thank you. Open House On September 9, 1999, an open house took place for a property that had been vacant for over 50 years. It was an Eastlake Victorian-style house that was built in 1899. The original owner hung himself in the basement. Every owner of the house thereafter encountered a tragic event. Legend tells of the house being haunted and cursed. The house had recently undergone three years of renovations. Multiple people had died during those renovations. Town folk warned that they should not proceed with attempting to sell the house. The real estate agency did not heed those warnings. The following are stories from those who attended the open house. Harriet and George Loomis, 9 o'clock a.m. My husband and I were the first ones there that day. We were met by the realtor. Her name was Jean. She appeared to be in her late thirties. She had chestnut brown hair that was tied back in a bun. She was quite pretty with bright blue eyes and a sparkling smile. Since we were the only ones there at the moment, we asked if she would show us around. She was happy to do so, and was quite helpful. The tour ended in the basement. It was a full basement with dark stone walls and very little natural light. In the center of the main basement wall was a closet door. The door was constructed of extremely weathered wood, and there was a bolt on the door. The realtor mentioned that she had never noticed the door before, and proceeded to open it. When the door opened, it made a loud whoosh that reminded me of the sound one might hear when opening a vacuum-sealed container. Jean reeled back and doubled over. We rushed to her side to see if she was okay. She was breathing heavily and had broken out in a sweat. We helped her up the basement stairs to the main floor of the house. She started coughing and appeared ill, but assured us she would be fine. So we left. Betty Carter, 9.39 a.m. When I entered the house, I could see the realtor sitting in a chair at the dining room table. It was a very long, rustic wooden table that was quite beautiful, so I commented on it. The realtor turned her head slowly in my direction, just now realizing I was there. She was pale and appeared ill. Before I could say anything, she just said, Look around all you want. I'll be here if you need me. I love open houses, so I always take my time. As I meandered through the second floor, I could hear the realtor talking downstairs. I hadn't heard the front door open, so I assumed that there had already been other people in the house when I arrived that I hadn't seen. When I went back downstairs, I saw the realtor in the hallway. She was leaning against the wall as though she were exhausted. She was staring forward and speaking as though someone else was there with her, But she was alone. I approached her and put my hand on her shoulder. It startled her. She whipped her head around in my direction. She was staring daggers at me. Are you okay? I asked. Do I look okay? She was pale and sweaty. Her eyelids appeared heavy. I answered her with honesty. Quite frankly, no, you don't. She stared at me for a moment and seemed confused. I decided to just move along and look at the rest of the house and headed for the basement. As I reached out to turn the knob on the basement door, the realtor snapped at me. No, do not go into the basement. I was confused. Why not? She stared up at the ceiling for several seconds and then lowered her head and fixed her gaze upon me. She pointed to the front door. I think you should leave now. I did just that. The most uneasy I felt that entire time was when I had to pass right by her in the hall in order to get to the front door. I could hear the wheezing congestion of her lungs with every breath she took. As I reached her side, I could hear her whisper, Hurry up. I ran out of the house. Byron Henderson 10:14 a.m. When I entered the house I could hear soft cackling coming from upstairs. I just assumed it was other people looking at the house so I didn't think much of it. I thoroughly checked out the first floor of the house, all the while I continued to hear that laughter from upstairs. I didn't hear anyone talking, just that strange cackle. I was starting to get an anxious feeling as I went upstairs. The cackle didn't seem jovial in nature. It sounded sadistic. I walked down the hallway toward the strange giggling. The hall ended at a closed door. The laughing was coming from beyond the door. I gently knocked. There was no response to my knock, and the laughter continued. I opened the door. In the corner of the room, the realtor sat in a rocking chair. She was slowly rocking back and forth. Her hair was messy and frazzled. Her eyes were heavily bloodshot. She just sat there rocking back and forth staring out at nothing as she smiled and cackled. I got the hell out of there. Mildred Woods and Robert Mailer, 10.57 a.m. My boyfriend and I are into the macabre and just wanted to see the inside of this famous house we heard so much about. When we entered the house, we were met by the realtor. She looked strange. Her hair was a mess. She was deathly pale, with deep, dark circles under her eyes. She held a blank expression as she spoke in a hoarse voice. Welcome to the house. Let me show you around. She proceeded to take us on a tour of the entire house, and things got kind of weird. As we passed by the front room of the house, she pointed to it and said, In 1901, Ebenezer Spain buried a hatchet into his wife's head in this room as she drank her morning tea. We then followed her as she started upstairs. Caroline Moss fell down these stairs in 1909. She broke her neck. We then reached the second floor and started down the hallway. She continued with the morbid history of the house. In 1914, Jack Cooper committed adultery in this hallway. She stepped into the bedroom. This is the bedroom where his wife shot him to death. We were creeped out yet captivated as we followed her into the next bedroom. In this room, a young man named Samson died of pneumonia. His mother joined him seconds after he took his last breath by slitting both of her wrists at his bedside. She then led us to the attic door. Ah, yes, the attic. We followed her up a thin flight of steps to a small room. Zelda Cortland poisoned her twin daughters in this room and then burned herself alive in the bathtub. She led us back downstairs and seemed excited as she directed us into the kitchen. The kitchen is marvelous. If you listen closely, you can hear the voices from the past. Can you hear them? I can. She appeared to drift off for several seconds before she noticed the kitchen window, which seemed to get her back on track. Through this back window, you can see the courtyard. In 1939, right over there near the fence, Bernard Crosby buried his seven-year-old daughter alive. He then came into this kitchen, stood where I am standing now, placed both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. She then seemed strangely giddy as she told us to follow her into the basement. Even though both of us enjoyed dark tales and were fascinated by the sinister history she was rattling off, this was all incredibly unusual and spooky. Still, we'd gotten this far so we thought we'd continue on and see what the basement looked like. When we got there, she stopped in the center of the basement and pointed up to the rafters. This home's original owner hung himself from that rafter in 1899. It's the same rafter that the last person to ever live here hung himself from in 1949. She looked at us and smiled. It wasn't a pleasant smile, though. It was menacing. She held that disturbing smile as she picked up an axe and stared at us. That's when I noticed her eyes were solid black. If you don't leave now, I'll cut off your heads. I don't know why I thought she was kidding at first, but then I realized how serious she was. We turned and ran up the basement stairs and out of that house. Sarah McDougal, 11:27 a.m. I was supposed to meet my husband at the house, but he was held up in a meeting at work, so I went in alone. When I entered the house, I was struck by the silence. At the very least, I expected a realtor to be there. I did find a stack of one-sheets that provided some basic information about the house. They were sitting on a table near the entrance, so I figured the realtor was in the bathroom, or maybe they went out to grab a bite to eat. I decided to stroll through the house. It was perfect. Exactly what my husband and I were hoping for. We were looking for a historic house that incorporated modern technology while still salvaging a vintage atmosphere. Our plan was to turn it into a multi-room bed and breakfast. Yes, I was fully well aware of the dark history surrounding the house, but I'm not superstitious. Quite frankly, I felt the legend of the house would help with bookings. I ventured upstairs first. It was quite lovely and had several rooms, which was what I wanted. Downstairs, I was stunned by the beauty of the kitchen and the dining room. I really couldn't have asked for more. I was ready to place a bid on the house right then, but first wanted to take a look at the basement. I opened the basement door and was mystified by how the basement steps seemed to disappear into darkness. I mean, I've seen some dark basements before, but this was ridiculous. As I started down the stairs, I was met by the subtle stench of decay. I assumed a dead mouse. As I descended the steps further, I noticed that the air felt heavy and humid, odd for a basement. As I reached the bottom of the steps, I could hear a gentle creaking sound coming from the corner. That's when I saw her. Later, I found out it was the realtor. She had hung herself from one of the rafters. There was a noose tied tightly around her throat. Her head was tilted at an odd angle. It was obvious her neck was severely broken. Her complexion appeared pasty and white, with dark blue, web-like veins bulging in her face. The creepiest thing was her eyes, wide open but lifeless, and solid black. As she swayed back and forth from the rafter, it appeared as though she was staring directly at me. Creepy doll, the shopkeeper. I'm a 69 year old man and I own an antique shop. We sell just about anything, furniture, collectibles, signs, any old vintage items. A lot of oddities have passed through the doors of my shop over the years, but the one that stands out above the rest is a creepy doll. I was opening shop one morning, I usually enter through the back entrance. Once I'm ready for the shop to open, I unlock the front door. On this day, as I approach the back door to enter my shop, I notice something unusual next to it. Now, it's not uncommon for people to donate things to my shop that they no longer want, and sometimes they'll just lay whatever it is by the door after hours. Quite frankly, most of it is garbage that belongs in a dumpster. But this was different. It was an old doll. The doll was propped up against the door, giving the appearance that she was standing on her own, and her gaze was fixed on me. As I got closer, I could tell that even though the doll was old, it was in relatively decent shape. The doll was dressed in a dark blue dress with a white lace collar. The doll's face and hands were antique white, which gave her a ghostly appearance, and highlighted her long, curly, dark red hair that ended at the middle of her back. I picked up the doll and looked at her face. There was something sad about her expression. The most notable aspect of her features was her eyes. One eye was sharp and clean, extremely realistic. The other eye had a slight fogginess to it and was slightly off-kilter. If this were a human we were talking about, it would be described as a lazy eye. The doll was ancient, unusual, and quite striking. I... Thought it would be a great fit for my shop so I took her in and positioned her on a shelf behind the register so everyone can see. This was the type of item I knew somebody would fall in love with fast so I didn't expect her to last long. After I placed the doll on the shelf, bells jingled in the back of the store indicating that my employee Roberto had arrived. As I tidied up the store, Roberto checked the register to make sure we had enough cash for the day and noticed our new arrival.
1: That is the creepiest thing I've ever
0: seen. She's not creepy, she's unusual. No, she's creepy. We opened up and I was at the far end of the store answering some questions from a customer. When I turned around, I noticed the doll standing on top of an old dresser behind me. This was a good 100 feet or so from the register where I had placed the doll. I picked up the doll and walked back to the register and asked Roberto if he had moved it. No, I don't even want to touch that thing. I wanted to be certain, so I asked him more emphatically. So you're saying that you did not pick up this doll and carry it to the other side of the store? That's what I'm saying. I was a little perplexed. How did the doll get over there? I figured it had to have been a customer who picked it up with the intent to buy and then changed their mind and set it down. But customers usually don't just meander behind the counter. I brushed it off and went back to work. I was finishing up with a customer when I noticed a young girl standing in front of me. She was cute as a button, probably uh, ten years old or so. She had dark brown hair that was tied in pigtails. Her jaw was dropped, and her eyes were locked onto that doll. Like I said, I knew somebody would fall in love with it. I could see how taken she was with the doll, so I removed the doll from the shelf and handed it to her. I think you two are made for each other. The little girl rocked the doll a bit and looked up at me with a smile. How much? I told her I'd sell it to her for 15 bucks. I'll give you 10. A haggler at that age? I loved it and immediately gave in. $10 it is. The little girl was beaming when she left the store and I figured that would be the end of it, but it wasn't. The next day, the little girl returned with the doll. She was saddened and her eyes were bloodshot. She had obviously been crying. She reluctantly handed the doll back to me. My mommy won't let me keep it. It was a sad sight. I gave the little girl her money back and she left. I put the doll back up behind the register. The next morning when I came in, I noticed the doll was gone. I figured Roberto had probably sold it, but before I could ask him about it, the little girl came through the front door holding the doll. Thanks for bringing it back to me, but I can't keep it. My mom will be angry. I asked her what she was talking about. She told me that she went outside this morning and the doll was on her porch. I asked Roberto if he took the doll to the little girl's house. He shook his head. I told you I'm never touching that creepy thing. I couldn't explain what happened, but the whole thing was too weird for me. I didn't want any part of it. Keep it, I told the little girl. At first she objected because her mother wouldn't allow it. I told her that if the doll found its way back to her, she should keep it. If her mom didn't want her to have it, then she should hide it. But keep the doll. Those two were obviously meant to be together. The little girl smiled at me and left with the doll. I never saw her or the doll ever again. Creepy doll. The little girl. I was ten when this happened. Me, my mom, and my older sister all went to town to go shopping. My mom and my sister loved shopping for clothes, getting their nails done, and all that girly stuff. They always made me tag along even though I wasn't into that kind of thing like they were. As we were walking toward a clothing store we passed an old antique store. I stopped and stared through the window. I loved antique shops. To me it was like stepping back in time. It was fun handling all those old objects, wondering what kind of stories they would tell if they could talk. My mom agreed to let me go into the antique store as long as I wasn't gone too long. I stepped inside and was looking forward to wandering through the aisles of ancient wonders. But I froze when I saw her. The doll. She was beautiful. I felt like I was floating as I approached her, mesmerized by her eyes. There was something sad about her, but I was sure that I could bring her happiness. I think you two were made for each other. That's what the old man said as he handed her to me. And he was correct. I wanted her and I was going to have her no matter what. The man offered her to me for $15. I had been saving up my allowance for a long time, I would have been happy to pay double that price. But part of the fun of antique shopping is the art of negotiation. I talked him down to $10. Right from the start, there was something about my doll that my mom didn't like. I think it was the doll's lazy eye. My mom thought it was scary. I thought it was unique and beautiful. This doll needed a special kind of love and care, and I had no doubt in my mind that I was the one to give that to her. The first day, I carried the doll with me everywhere, even at the dinner table. In hindsight, that was probably a mistake. I shouldn't have overwhelmed my mom with the doll. Perhaps if I just kept her in my bedroom, at least at first, I could have gotten my mom used to the doll gradually. That night, I put the doll in bed with me. That was the best night of sleep I have ever had. I felt safe with her near me, protected. But that morning, my mom was adamant that I return the doll. I asked her why. She said that during the night, she got up to go to the kitchen for a midnight snack. She said she saw the doll standing outside my bedroom door, staring at her. She scolded me for putting the doll outside my door to guard my room. She said the doll was just too scary. The thing was, I didn't put the doll outside my bedroom door. I put the doll in bed with me, and when I woke up, she was still there. So I thought maybe my mom had had a nightmare. Either way, she was frightened and didn't want the doll in the house anymore, so I had to return her. It was difficult. I cried the entire way to the antique store. It was tough to hand her back to the shopkeeper. That night, I cried myself to sleep. The next morning, I woke up and stepped onto the front porch. My eyes lit up. There she was. The doll was sitting on one of the front porch stairs. I was so happy to see her, I picked her up and gave her a big hug. I assumed the old shopkeeper recognized how attached I had become to the doll and brought her back to me. It was good to see her again, but I had to give her back. My mom was too scared and I'd get in trouble if she thought I defied her by not returning the doll. I planned on asking the shopkeeper if he would keep her in his store and let me come visit her. That way mom wouldn't be scared and I could still see her from time to time. To my surprise, the shopkeeper and his employee insisted they did not bring the doll to my house. And I believed him because he had a baffled look about him. He insisted that I keep the doll. He said that if my mom didn't want me to have the doll, then I should hide it from her. I didn't need much persuading. I kept the doll. Today, I'm 58 years old. It is true that throughout my lifetime, people who wronged me often met with tragic ends. Did that have anything to do with my doll? Not that I'm aware of. And in case you're wondering, yes, I still have the doll. And I always will. Strange vacation. I'm a male. When I was in college, my buddy and I took a spring break vacation to Acapulco. The trip down there was uneventful, with the exception of my friend getting a nice chuckle when I misunderstood the flight attendant when she gave me my food choices. I had the option of an omelet or crepes. For the life of me, I thought she said grapes. The chubby bald guy sitting in the aisle seat next to us thought that was kind of funny as well. Seriously, that was how uneventful the flight there was. That would all change once our plane landed. We booked our vacation through a travel agent that included a few perks, including a free shuttle to our hotel. Once we arrived at our hotel, we were to be greeted by someone from the travel agency who would give us a quick tour of the immediate area and provide us a list of different things to do in Acapulco. We felt that would be very helpful since neither of us had been there before. First, we had to obtain our luggage. When we got to the baggage claim area, we initially felt quite lucky as our luggage was first to come off the baggage carousel. When my friend reached down to grab his bag, we were both distracted by a woman standing next to us who was pointing in our direction and screaming in absolute terror. I was trying to decipher what she was saying when my friend yelled out in pain. I looked over to find him shaking his hand and cursing. Then I realized what the woman was screaming. Rat! There was a rat standing on his bag. We probably would have spotted it ourselves if the woman hadn't thrown a fit and confused us. As I watched the fat furry rodent scamper away, the chubby guy who was sitting in our aisle on the plane stopped by and said, That's a hell of a way to start a vacation. He pointed to the blood dripping from my friend's finger. It was only then that I realized he had been bitten. One of the airport employees rushed over to see what the fuss was about. He was a tall, distinct looking man with light brown eyes, wavy black hair, and a handlebar mustache. He insisted that my friend get his rat bite treated. My friend waved him off saying it was no big deal and he'd cleaned it up at the hotel. The man was persistent and kept saying my friend might catch rat fever if he didn't have the wound disinfected immediately. We told the guy that we didn't have time, but he practically pushed us toward a dinky, first aid area and assured us our shuttle would wait for us. The guy wiped the blood from my friend's finger, doused it with hydrogen peroxide, and wrapped it up. We thanked him and went outside to our shuttle, only to find that it was gone. We were pissed, to say the least, and I guess it was pretty obvious because the man with the handlebar mustache rushed over and was extremely apologetic. He said he'd make it up to us by giving us the address to the most exclusive hideaway strip joint in all of Acapulco. He handed us the address on a scrap of paper, and we took a cab to our hotel. By the time we made it to the hotel lobby, we had also missed the tour and list of things to do that was part of our vacation package, so we decided to just wing it. And being a couple of young, horny guys, we figured we'd make the most of missing out on these things by going to the elusive strip club we wouldn't have known about otherwise. In order to save a little money, we decided to walk to the strip joint. After walking a while, we realized that we traveled out of the safe touristy area near our hotel and happened upon more of a rural neighborhood. We passed by several houses that were boarded up and abandoned. It was getting dark and there were no street lights so we were starting to feel uneasy. We were close to calling this off and turning back when we finally reached the street that the strip joint was supposed to be on. It sure didn't look like an area you would expect such an establishment to be. There was a large, old metal industrial building and not much else. We started walking along the building, assuming the strip joint had to be further up the road, when we were startled by the loud rattle of a metal door quickly sliding open. It reminded me of something out of the movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre. As the doors slid open, a burly man wearing an executioner's hood and no shirt stood there. We asked him if this was the strip club. He nodded and stood back so we could enter. We stepped into the lobby of the club. The floor was covered in bright green shag carpet and the walls were draped in green velvet. Another bouncer with an executioner's hood stood by a door. Near the door was an average-looking woman next to a cash register. We paid her for entry to the club, and the bouncer opened the door and let us into the main portion of the building. We found ourselves in a large, pretty elaborate strip club. There was a huge stage in the middle and lots of booths. There were women stripping on stage and several doing table dances. There were TV monitors all throughout the room. We sat down in a booth and my friend snickered when he pointed out that the monitors were all showing a woman taking a shower. I told him to turn around. We both laughed as there was a huge shower behind my friend with an attractive woman in the midst of a wash. The video monitors were simply airing the live feed of her shower. The strip joint was what one would expect There was nothing too unusual except for the attire of the bouncers and the woman in the shower. We had one of the women do a table dance for us. She was quite sexy. When her dance was over, she took on a meek persona and had a friendly conversation with us until someone else called her over to dance for them. Everything was fine and dandy until we tried to leave. We got up headed for the exit door, but one of the bouncers blocked our path to the door. He said we couldn't leave until we showed him our tickets. We explained that we didn't have tickets. We just paid the entry fee and they let us in. He insisted that we needed to show him tickets or we couldn't leave. This was really strange. I heard of not letting people into a strip club, but not letting them out? Weird. As we argued with the bouncer, we noticed a man dressed up like a priest in the corner. He was talking to one of the bouncers and was pointing at us. That's when I realized it was the man from the airport with the handlebar mustache. We waved and called out to him, hoping that if he recognized us, he'd help us out. Instead of acknowledging us, he motioned to the bouncer and pointed to a metal door at the far end of the room. Three bouncers then escorted us toward the door. As we passed by the man with the handlebar mustache, I overheard him saying something to the bouncer about my friend being the correct blood type. The bouncers led us to the gloomy metal door, opened it, and pushed us in. The room was empty except for a small wooden table in the center of it. There were two mugs of beer on the table. One of the bouncers pointed to the beer mugs. Free beer.
1: Drink up.
0: He then shut the door and locked us in the room. We couldn't believe what was happening and definitely weren't drinking that beer. We had no choice but to wait, but then I noticed a small window near the top of the wall. I thought it might be big enough for us to get out through. I pointed out the window to my friend. Let's get the hell out of here. I was able to hoist my friend up to the window. He undid the lock, opened it and was able to slide through. I kept thinking that at any second a bunch of those bouncers and the man with the handlebar mustache were going to come through that door and get me. My friend who was now outside put his arm back through the window. I was able to jump up just high enough to get a hold of his forearm and he pulled me up and through the window. We ran and kept running. We didn't feel safe until we finally reached the touristy section of town with the hotels. At that point, we slowed to a walk. We were getting close to a hotel when a lady of the night approached us. I just wanted to get back to our hotel and waved her off, but my friend decided to negotiate with her. Before I could tell him that this wasn't a good idea, a short police officer stepped up behind us. In this town, it's illegal to negotiate with hookers. I'm going to have to take you both to jail. The hooker dashed away and we pleaded with the cop to let us go. We told him our night had been bad enough and explained about our experience in the strip club. When we mentioned the man with the handlebar mustache, the cop's eyes widened. He told us that the man we described was a known human organ thief. He said if we had drank those beers, we would have woken up in a tub of ice with no kidneys. We were flipping out. So much so that we forgot that the cop was telling us he was about to take us to jail. Turns out, he just wanted a bribe. He said we could just pay him the $20 fine. We gave him the money so we could be done with this night and get back to our hotel. When we got to the hotel lobby, we ran into the chubby man from the airplane. He was in a jolly mood and holding a 12-pack of beer. Want to help me polish these off? Having a few beers with someone who seemed harmless enough was just what we needed, so the three of us went up to our room. Our room didn't have a mini-fridge, so my friend grabbed an ice bucket. The ice bucket wasn't close to being big enough for 12 beers, so I pulled the plastic bag from the wastebasket and we went to get ice together. The ice machine was on the floor below, but we weren't gone for more than ten minutes. When we returned, the previously jolly, chubby man was visibly bothered by something. We asked him what was wrong. He said that a couple minutes after we left, there was a knock on the door. He answered the door and said there was a man with a handlebar mustache standing there. Behind him were two men. He said one of the men had a rather intimidating knife clipped to his belt and the other was holding a spool of parachute cord. He said the handlebar mustache man asked where we were. The chubby man told us that he had a feeling these guys were up to no good, so he played dumb and pretended that this was his room and he didn't know who they were talking about. He said the three men appeared disgruntled and left. That was enough vacation for us. We packed our things, took a cab to the airport, and were on the next flight out of there. The Sewer Man My name is Paul. I'm in my late twenties. I used to live in the upper apartment in the tallest building in the historic district of a medium-sized old town. It had a great view of a river and the main street. It was particularly cool when the town would have their annual parades and firework shows. I could watch them all from the comfort of my living room. It was a pretty fancy place. I certainly couldn't afford it under normal circumstances, but I knew the owners. They were planning on moving there themselves in six months. They were hoping to rent it out for those six months to help pay the mortgage on the building. So they said I could stay there for half the price they would normally charge until they were ready to move in themselves. I jumped at the chance. The place was awesome. I had a lot of good times there. One night, I was throwing a party. There was a girl named Sue that I was sweet on. I had been courting her for the past month, but no luck just yet. I was hoping maybe the semi-romantic view from my living room may help sway her. We stood there quite a while looking out over the town and the river. It was a starry night as well, so there was quite an ambiance going on. Then she pointed down the street and mentioned that I was very close to that manhole cover. I thought that was kind of an odd thing to mention. So what? What does that mean? She looked at me with a serious expression. The sewer man. I had no idea what she was talking about. What the hell is a sewer man? She shook her head. Not a sewer man. The sewer man i shrugged because none of this was resonating with me she smirked and called out to the rest of the people at the party announcing that i had never heard of the sewer man everyone gathered around while she and a few other people there explained the legend of the sewer man the urban legend goes something like this during the great depression food was scarce and some families could not afford to feed all of their children. Some parents would put their kids up for adoption, give them to orphanages, or even sell them. The sewer man was five years old and the youngest of seven children. He suffered from some kind of mental illness and was prone to extreme violence. Thus, they had no takers for him. Instead, his parents decided to eliminate him. One night, at exactly midnight, they removed a manhole cover near their home and threw him into the sewer. They left him there to die. Only, he didn't. The sewer man learned to live in the sewer, using it as his sanctuary. Occasionally, he will rise from the sewers to feed. He'll eat anything he can, rats, dogs, cats, children, and sometimes adults. No matter who you are, you're never safe from the sewer man. It is said that if late at night you hear the metallic grind of a manhole cover moving, it is the sewer man coming topside searching for the parents that left him to die. Legend has it that if you stand on top of a manhole cover, look down at it and say, Sewer Man, come home, three times. The sewer man will assume you are his parents and come to your home. He'll arrive before midnight and knock three times on your door, If you answer, he'll assume you are one of his parents and kill you. I laughed after they told me. It was a fun urban legend that I had never heard before, but obviously it was nonsense. Sue insisted that it was true. She said she knew someone who tried it once. She said when she was in high school, a girl named Kathy Robson stood over a manhole cover and said, Sewerman, come home, three times. The next day, she didn't show up at school, and her parents didn't call in to alert the school that she wasn't coming in that day. She didn't show up the next day either, and still no word from her parents. A group of kids decided to stop by her house to see if she was okay. When they arrived, the front door was open. There was a large, dirty spot on the front of the door as if someone with a very dirty hand had knocked on it. Inside the house was a shambles. Things were tossed about as though there had been a struggle. There were dirty footprints all over the house, and on the kitchen floor they found scratch marks and a broken fingernail, as though someone were clawing to hang on as they were being dragged away. Again, I was moved to laughter. Come on, that's utter nonsense. Several of the others at the party spoke up and confirmed that the story was true. One even said that her brother was one of the kids who went to the house that day, and they never found Kathy or her family. To this day, they are missing. I applauded everyone for an entertaining story, but remained skeptical. Then Sue spoke up. There's only one way to be sure. Do it. I dare you to do it. Part of me wanted to do it just to prove to everybody that this was just an urban legend with no validity, but part of me wanted to do it to impress Sue, or at least prove to her that I wasn't too scared to do it. Someone pointed out that it was about 10.30, so if I was going to do it, I needed to do it soon so the sewer man would have enough time to get here before midnight. I was game, so the entire group of us went down to the street. Everyone was laughing and having a good time, until I stepped onto the manhole cover. Then a hush filled the night. Everyone appeared to be on pins and needles. Some people were even holding on to others' arms in suspense. I shook my head in defiance and looked down at the manhole cover. Sewer man come home. Sewer man come home. I took a long pause for a dramatic effect and then finished it. Sewer man come home. That was it. I did it. I looked up and everyone was staring at me in shock. They truly did not believe I was going through with it. One couple immediately got their car keys out, wished me good luck, and hurried away. The rest of us went back up to my apartment. I thought everyone would be having some fun with the fact that I actually did it. I was expecting a jovial mood and for the party to continue. I figured people would just forget about it now that the novelty of me actually doing it was over. But that wasn't the case at all. Everyone sat around. Nobody was saying a word. They were all so serious. Some people were worried. Some visibly scared. One by one, people started getting up and leaving the party. They believed it. They truly believed the urban legend and wanted to get out of there before the sewer man showed up. By 11.30, all of my guests had departed except for Sue. She said that since she was the one who got me into this, she'd stick it out with me. We didn't talk much. We mostly just sat there and watched the clock. I could feel her growing increasingly nervous as the clock got closer to midnight. I started thinking how great this turned out. Once the clock struck midnight, that would mean the sewer man wasn't coming. Sue would be nice and relaxed, relieved even, and we'd be alone. This was my shot. Sue was watching the clock in fear. I was watching it in excitement. Finally, the clock turned to 11.59pm. Just 60 seconds until we could put this whole silly thing behind us and a knock at the door. It wasn't just a knock. It was a heavy thud, like someone hit it with a sledgehammer. Sue jumped out of her seat. It's the sewer man. I shook my head in disbelief. It can't be. Another knock. This one was even louder and more forceful than the first. I thought I heard wood splinter from the impact. I got up and approached the door. The light out in the hallway was on, and through the crack at the bottom of the door, I could see the brooding shadow of someone standing out there. I looked back at Sue. She was pale. Her hand was covering her mouth. In my mind, I just couldn't believe it. The sewer man could not be standing outside my door, waiting to drag me into the bowels of the city. This couldn't be happening. There had to be somebody from the party out there messing with me. That was the most logical conclusion. I stepped closer to the door. I knew at any second the deafening third knock would be upon us. It would be at this time that I would turn the knob to meet my fate. I took in a deep breath. I wouldn't let it out again until the door was open. I gripped the knob and prepared to turn it. I startled at the noise and almost turned the knob and opened the door, but I realized the noise was coming from behind me and it wasn't a knock. It was the chime of the clock as it struck midnight. I looked at the crack under the door. The shadow was gone. I looked back at Sue. She was waiting anxiously for me to finally open the door. My hand was slick with sweat as I turned the doorknob and pulled the door open. There was nobody there. For a second, I was full of relief. Then the blood ran from my face when I saw it. In the center of the door was a gigantic muddy spot. In the hallway were large muddy footprints leading down the stairs. I don't know what was outside my door that night. Maybe it was one of my friends from the party having some fun. Maybe it was the sewer man. Regardless, that is one urban legend I will never mess with again. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Be sure to visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com. Sign up for the free newsletter and receive a free book and movie. We'll see you soon. Very soon.